Let me uh, invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11 for our time of study in the Word this morning. We're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation, and as we continue in our study of this book, we come to Revelation 11, verse 1. My goal this morning is to cover verses 1 through 14, and the title of the message this morning is The Saga of Jerusalem and the Two Witnesses. The Saga of Jerusalem and the Two Witnesses. You know, some heroic figures uh, do their exploits alone. Others do their exploits in pairs, right? Batman has his Robin. Tom Brady (laughs) has his Gronkowski. Saul had his Barnabas. And a bit later, Saul had his Silas. And we call such pairs dynamic duos. And we understand that they accomplish more together than they ever could have accomplished by themselves. And in our passage today, we're going to see two men who are sent by God to be his witnesses during the coming tribulation period at the end of the age. And these two men are going to prove to be the greatest dynamic duo in human history. And we often refer to them as the two witnesses. And they will do powerful exploits that in our passage today that will rival Elijah and Moses in their greatness. Now, as you guys already know, if you have been with us, these chapters in Revelation are taking us into the future and showing us how the story of human history will reach its culmination in the person of Jesus Christ. Beginning in Revelation 4, we saw uh, Christ, um, actually, I think chapter 5, we saw Christ take the book of human destiny and break its seven seals of judgment And we saw that the seventh seal contained the six trumpets of judgment that the angels blow through the length of Revelation 8 and then 9. And as we come into Revelation 11 this morning, we find ourselves in between the blowing of the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. And there's a little interlude in chapter 10 where John gets recommissioned, as it were, and then what we see Uh, in our passage today. Thus far, the unfolding of events that we have seen from Revelation chapters uh, 4 through 10 are cosmic and global in their scope. But chapter 11 begins with a camera shot zooming in on a particular place on planet Earth a particular spot, and that spot is the temple of God in the city of Jerusalem. And then there's focus on the city of Jerusalem itself. And this specific attention that is being given to the temple and to the city of Jerusalem in our passage today serves to remind us that the tribulation period that is to come is not simply about God's dealings with the world in general, but also about him doing something very special with regard to his people, the people of Israel. 
There are many prophetic promises that we see throughout Scripture about the future salvation of Israel. We see this in the Old and the New Testament. And in our chapter today, we're going to begin to see how Revelation has something to say about how those promises will be directly fulfilled. And the way we're going to break down our study of this text is we're going to observe six prophecies regarding Jerusalem and the two witnesses during the tribulation period. Six prophecies regarding Jerusalem and the two witnesses during the coming tribulation period. And the first of these prophecies we can word this way, and you'll see this on the PDF that uh, you've been using thus far in our service. Number one, God will lay claim to the Jerusalem temple and its worshipers. God will lay claim to the Jerusalem temple and its worshipers. Observe what John says, beginning in verse 1. He says, Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. The measuring rod that is given to John would have been something like a bamboo reed that is very much like our yardsticks are today, only this would have been much longer. At the moment, all that John is telling us, according to the New American Standard translation, is that someone is speaking to him. Some Greek manuscripts identify the speaker as an angel. Either way you understand this, the person who is speaking here is clearly speaking as God's mouthpiece, speaking for God. Why would God have John measure this temple? That's kind of one of the first questions that we would ask as we look at verse 1. It's certainly not because the dimensions of this temple are important, because John doesn't give us those dimensions anywhere in this text. The measuring that is done here seems to represent God taking stock of this temple and its altar and also taking stock of those who are worshiping in the temple during this time and laying claim to all of it as his. In fact, the person speaking to John calls this the temple of what? The temple of God which clearly indicates that God views this temple as his, as belonging to him. And God telling John here to measure this temple right after his prophetic recommissioning shows us that this temple and the city of Jerusalem is now taking center stage in the prophetic developments that are going to follow. I'll never forget a few years ago standing on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and our Jewish tour guide uh, pointed to where we were standing and he said, this is the most important real estate on planet Earth. What happens here can start World War III. And that's absolutely true. And we see this place, this very spot This piece of real estate taking center stage, the center of God's gaze and attention and with the events that follow. 
Now, what makes this reference to a temple striking is that John is, in all likelihood, writing around A.D. 95, which is about 25 years after the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans with not one stone left on top of the other, right? And yet John is ushered here into the future wherein he sees a physical and measurable temple standing in Jerusalem. And if we take John's language here at face value and understand him to be speaking of a future day, then we conclude that evidently a future physical temple will be built during the last days that will be functioning as a place of worship for the people of Israel. And based on where Revelation 11 is situated in the timeline of Revelation, it looks like this temple will be standing during the seven-year tribulation period that is to come. The worshipers at this temple may not initially even be believers in Christ, but God tells John to take measure of them, which means that God's eyes are on them in a special way and may indicate that God intends to save them and claim them for his own. I also like the thought of one commentator, J.B. Smith. Uh, who suggests that the measuring that John is doing here at God's direction is performed in anticipation of the defilement and desolation that is about to be inflicted upon these sacred environments by the coming of the Antichrist. This defilement, as many of you know, is called the abomination of desolation that takes place at the midpoint of this seven-year tribulation period when the Antichrist comes into the Holy of Holies of the temple and proclaims himself to be God and demands to be worshipped as such. And let me talk just a little bit about this because it'll help us to understand what follows in this chapter. In Daniel 9.27, you can write down that reference Daniel speaks about what we often call the 70th week of prophecy, which is a week of years, so seven years. And he speaks of the Antichrist and says in Daniel 9.27 that he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, in other words, for seven years, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Regarding what this stoppage of the sacrifice will entail in Daniel 11:31 Daniel speaks of the antichrist and says that forces from him will arise I'm reading from the text here forces from him will arise desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice and they will set up the abomination of desolation Regarding what this abomination of desolation entails, the Apostle Paul speaks of this moment in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4, where he speaks of the Antichrist, who is the man of lawlessness, and then, I quote, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, 
so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. As for what happens once this abomination of desolation occurs at the midpoint of the seven-year period, Jesus says in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And a few verses later, Jesus says in verse 21, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will, unquote. All of this seems to indicate that it is at the midpoint of the tribulation that the Antichrist will enter the Holy of Holies, set up some representation of himself in the Holy of Holies of the temple, putting a stop to the sacrifices and the worship of God in the temple, and then setting off what Jesus calls a great tribulation, which is the final three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation period. Now, this will become, I think, a little bit more evident through what happens next as we come back to Revelation 11. And this brings us to the second prophecy regarding Jerusalem and the two witnesses during the tribulation period. Number two, God will give Jerusalem to be trampled by the nations for three and a half years. God will give Jerusalem to be trampled by the nations for three and a half years. God has told John to measure the inner court of the temple, but he tells John something that he is not to measure. Look at verse 2 where he speaks to John and says, leave out or literally cast out the court which is outside the temple, that would be the court of the Gentiles, and do not measure it for it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. So God is telling John, don't even bother right now measuring the court of the Gentiles that surrounds the temple proper. And he gives two reasons why. First, he says, for it has been given to the nations. This means that what John measured in verse 1 is given to God, but that this outer court of the Gentiles is given to the nations who, the speaker here in this verse says, will tread underfoot the holy city for how long? For 42 months. 42 months is three and a half years. If we think of the months as 30 days each, then this is a period of 1,260 days. And according to this verse, in God's sovereign scheme of things, license is going to be given to the nations to tread underfoot the holy city of Jerusalem for 42 months which is speaking of the second half of the seven-year tribulation period. By the way, Jesus uses exactly this language in Luke 21, verse 24. In fact, you can write that reference down. Luke 21, 
24 when he foretells that there will be a time of desolation coming upon Jerusalem. He says that in verse 20, in which, verse 24, he says, quote, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So very much tied to these events that are localized in Jerusalem is what then transpires and is described in the following uh, verses. Uh, This brings us to the third prophecy in this passage regarding Jerusalem and the two witnesses during the tribulation period. Number three, let's word it this way, God will authorize his two witnesses to prophesy with power for three and a half years. Observe what John says beginning in verse 3. God is speaking to John through his messenger, and he says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. First of all, God is saying here that he will personally be granting authority to these two witnesses to prophesy, and that they're going to prophesy while clothed in sackcloth. We're actually told about the clothes that they wear. Uh, They are clothed in sackcloth, which are garments that represent sadness and mourning. And their wearing of sackcloth here is befitting to their message of God's judgment upon the world, along with their call for all men everywhere to repent of their sins, including the Jews in Jerusalem to repent of their sins and to turn to Christ. John is also told that these two witnesses will prophesy for 1260 days, which happens to be 42 months or three and a half years. The only question that we're left asking here is, is the prophesying of these two witnesses during the same time period as the 42 months mentioned in verse 2, or is it a different period? In other words, is the prophesying of these two witnesses during the second half of the tribulation period, when the holy city is being trampled underfoot, or is their ministry happening during the first half of the tribulation period? And I have to let you guys know that commentators, even dispensational commentators are divided on this, but I would agree with Warren Wearsby and Charles Ryrie and my little brother, uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, also uh, J.B. Smith, and a few others in seeing these witnesses as prophesying during the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, which is prior to Jerusalem being trampled underfoot by the nations. And I'm not dogmatic about this, but when we read, guys, the coming verses in this chapter and we see the damage that these two witnesses are able to do at will, It's hard to imagine anybody daring to trample Jerusalem while these guys are around. Most likely, it is only after these two witnesses are removed from the scene that this trampling would be able to take place with abandon. 
John is told here that these two witnesses are going to prophesy, which probably involves a combination of just preaching God's truth, denouncing sin, along with uttering prophecies of what is to come. We've been seeing already the seven seals of judgment being broken and six of the trumpets being blown. And in all likelihood, these two witnesses are prophesying on earth during the time of these judgments, and they're probably announcing to the world the judgments that are going to fall next, along with speaking other prophecies regarding other judgments that are not recorded in Revelation and prophecies regarding the coming of Christ being so imminent and calling all to repentance and to faith in Christ. If you're like a lot of people, you read about these two witnesses and you want to know who they are, right? Um, And you know what? If that's you, you don't have to wonder any longer because John tells us who they are. If you've been dying to know who are these two witnesses, John tells you in verse 4, John says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So there you go. The mystery of the identity of these two witnesses is solved. Of course, I'm being a little facetious here, but let's stay for a moment with what John is choosing to tell us about these witnesses And referring to these witnesses as the two olive trees and two lampstands, John seems to think that we ought to know what that means. And happily, there is only one other place in the Bible where mention is made of two olive trees in connection with a lampstand. And that is Zechariah chapter 4. And John seems to be saying to us, if you want to know more about these two witnesses, go to Zechariah chapter 4. And so let's go to Zechariah 4. If we go to this chapter, we find ourselves in the year 522 B.C. A large group of Jews have returned with Zerubbabel from the Babylonian captivity, and upon returning, they immediately begin rebuilding the temple of God that had been destroyed by the Babylonians, and this rebuilding starts off beautifully. They successfully lay the foundation of the new temple, and everything seems to be going great, but then opposition arises against the project that causes it to come to a stop and languish for 16 years with nothing being done on the construction of the temple. After this 16-year break where the foundation is laid but nothing more, God gives to Zechariah the prophet a vision. He speaks to Zechariah and says to him in Zechariah 4.2, what do you see? He wakes him up and shows him something and says, what do you see? And among the things that Zechariah sees is a lampstand with seven lamps on it, and he also sees two olive trees. We see that described in verse 2. And Zechariah looks at these and says, what are these, my Lord? And Zechariah tells the story this way. 
Verse 5, so the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. What top stone is God talking about here? The top stone of the temple when it is finally completed, which is why in the very next verse, Zechariah says, verse 8, also the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven, probably referring to the seven lamps, will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. Well, Zechariah still has questions about what he's seeing. So he continues in verse 11. And he says, Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? And I answered the second time and said to him, What are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves? And from the words that Zechariah is using here, it's evident that there wasn't just a lampstand with seven lamps, but there were golden pipes that, or conduits that ran from the olive trees to the lampstand, providing the olive oil to serve as fuel for the burning of these lamps. Zechariah wants to know what these olive trees represent that are providing fuel for these lamps. So he asked, and observe the answer he gets in verse 13. So he answered me saying, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones. Literally, these are the two sons of oil who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, a lot of commentators view these olive trees as being Zerubbabel and Joshua, who was the high priest at this time, and they very well may be right. It's also possible that these two olive trees represent the prophets Zechariah and Haggai. You can later read Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where you learn that it was through the prophetic ministry of Zechariah and Haggai that Zerubbabel and Joshua were encouraged to take up the temple project once again. And we're told that all throughout the remaining construction in Ezra 5, 2, we're told that these prophets of God, these two prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, were with them, supporting them, providing fuel, as it were, to their efforts. 
But either way that you understand the identity of these two olive trees in the Zechariah 4 context, you come back to Revelation chapter 11 and verse 4, and you find that the parallels are not exact, but you cannot miss the significance of God speaking of these two witnesses in this future tribulation period, saying in verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. What does it mean that they stand before the Lord? What means that they are the Lord's servants who do the Lord's bidding? They get their instructions from him and they carry out whatever it is that God tells them to do. There also may be truth to what Chuck Swindoll says when he writes the following words. Let me read these to you. Quote, because the symbols of the two olive trees and two lampstands in Revelation 11.4 correspond directly to the symbols in Zechariah 4, it may be that the testimony of the two witnesses will somehow relate to the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem as mentioned in Revelation 11, 1 and 2. That would actually make sense. And it might explain why these two witnesses are mentioned in the same context as the Jerusalem temple is mentioned here in Revelation chapter 11. In fact, it may be that these men are called witnesses, not simply because they prophesy and testify of Christ, but also because they witness the construction of the temple all the way to its completion. And this perspective would fit best if we understand these two men to be prophesying during the first half of the tribulation period. In fact, it may be true that the deadly miracles that these men can perform help to ensure that the construction of the temple in Jerusalem is completed without interruption. In verse 5, John is told how invincible these witnesses are. Look at verse 5. John says, and if anyone, or this is actually the voice speaking to John, says, and if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. So if these two witnesses are located in Jerusalem doing these kinds of destructive miracles when anyone tries to harm them, it's hard to imagine the city of Jerusalem being trampled underfoot by the Gentiles or of the temple construction and activities being hindered. These witnesses are the great defenders of the temple and its worshipers during this time. If anyone, the text says here, so much as wants to harm these witnesses as they approach them, those people will discover that God has a terrible plan for their life. Fire will come from the mouth of these witnesses and kill them. And it must be this way, John is told. The voice speaking to John continues in verse 6, 
and says, these have the power to shut up the sky so that the rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Imagine having this kind of power. From these descriptions, we see that these two witnesses are very much like Elijah and Moses. We don't know for sure who these two witnesses are, but what is clear is that they come in the spirit of Moses and Elijah. During Elijah's day, he shut up the sky for three and a half years so that it would not rain. In Moses' day, we know that Moses himself turned water into blood and struck the land of Egypt with many other plagues. And that's the kind of thing that these two witnesses are going to do. The earliest commentary on Revelation was written in A.D. 260. Imagine that. A commentary on Revelation written in A.D. 260. And... This commentator suggested that the two witnesses were Elijah and Jeremiah. Other very ancient commentators suggested that these two witnesses are Elijah and Enoch. Other commentators over the centuries have suggested that these two witnesses might be Elijah and Moses. You may have your own opinions about who these two witnesses are. It's possible that these two witnesses will be none of the names that I have just mentioned. In fact, I think if God wanted us to know the identity of these two men, he would have told us. But what he does let us know here in this passage is that these two witnesses, whoever they are, will come and minister in the spirit and power of Elijah and Moses, and they will have enormous power to do miracles to devastating effect. They are men who are not to be messed with. So when and how will the ministry of these two witnesses come to an end? Well, we've already learned that their ministry will last 1,260 days, but what happens next tells us specifically how their ministry comes to an end. And this brings us to the fourth prophecy regarding Jerusalem and the two witnesses during the tribulation period. Number four, the beast will kill the two witnesses to the delight of the world. The beast will kill the two witnesses to the delight of the world. Observe what is said to John in verse seven. When they, the two witnesses, have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. This is actually the first mention of the beast in the book of Revelation. It's actually the first of 36 occasions where the beast is mentioned. And this is clearly the Antichrist whom we will be learning much more about as the narrative of Revelation continues to unfold in the coming chapters. This Antichrist is the Satan-possessed man who will arise and become the leader of the world during this period. 
in history. He derives his power from hell, from the abyss. John is being told here that he will become so fed up with these witnesses that he will marshal his forces against them and make war against them, and he will actually succeed. He will overcome them and kill them. Many others prior to this moment will have tried and failed and gotten destroyed for it, but the Antichrist will succeed in killing these witnesses. Notice, though, that the beast does not kill these two witnesses until they have finished their testimony. Until they have finished their testimony. In other words, it's not until God is finished with them that they are allowed to be killed. And by the way, the same is true for you and for me who know the Lord. Jim Elliott himself, the missionary to the Alka Indians, once said, and I quote, remember you are immortal until your work is done. If you know the Lord, you are immortal until God is finished with you. And the same will be true of these two witnesses. When their testimony is finished, God will allow them to be overcome and killed by the Antichrist. And so great will be the Antichrist's contempt for these witnesses that he will refuse them a proper burial. Even worse than that, observe what John is told in verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically or literally spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord, in other words, the Lord of these two witnesses, that's Jesus, was crucified. At this point, Jerusalem will have become so wicked and overrun that it can rightly, overrun by evil, that it can rightly be called Sodom and Egypt because of their immorality and wickedness that will prevail in the city. A Jew hearing this city described as Sodom and Egypt would be shocked and scandalized and even angered by these titles. But these titles reveal that Jerusalem in this day will be no better than Sodom and Egypt. The great city that you see here in verse 8 spoken of is clearly the city of Jerusalem. Though it is called Sodom and Egypt, it's clearly Jerusalem because this city is referred to as the place where the Lord of these two witnesses was crucified. Just as Jesus was killed for being the faithful and the true witness, so these two witnesses will be killed by the beast and their bodies will be left to rot in the street. And this will be exactly what the world at this time will want to happen. In verse 9, John is told the following. Verse 9, those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. The implication here is that there will probably be some who suggest maybe we ought to bury these guys. But the people of the world won't let their bodies be buried. They will prevent anyone who tries to approach their bodies in order to give them a proper burial. 
By the way, it's fascinating for us to observe here that John is not merely told that the inhabitants of Jerusalem will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days. Instead, look at the text, John is told that those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days. This probably will indicate that there's already many nationalities in Jerusalem at this time. It probably also indicates that people from around the world are now descending upon the city of Jerusalem in order to see the spectacle of these two dead witnesses that are lying in the street. But the statement of this verse also could easily be fulfilled through the miracle of modern technology where people around the world are seeing the dead bodies of these witnesses on satellite television or through their cell phones and through other technologies. The contempt that the world has for these two witnesses is obvious enough by them leaving their bodies lying in the street, but it gets even worse. Listen to what John is told in verse 10. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Notice that word tormented. It's the same word that was used back in chapter 9 to speak of what the demonic locust scorpion creatures did to the people of the earth for five months. They tormented, and that's how the people viewed these witnesses as tormenting them. The people of earth will view these two prophesying faithful witnesses of God as being as much of a torment to them as those demon creatures were in chapter 9, so much so that when the beast kills them, We're told here in verse 10 that those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. This is actually the only mention of rejoicing on the earth during the tribulation period. In all of the book of Revelation, it's the only time anything is said about anyone rejoicing on the earth during this period and what the world People who dwell on the earth are rejoicing and making merry over is the death of these two witnesses. Some writers suggest that perhaps people will call this occasion Happy Dead Witnesses Day, and they will send gifts to one another to express their joy. Finally, we can now get on with our lives and make of this world a better place now that these troublemakers are gone. We should actually look at the reaction of the world to these two witnesses and be prepared to face something similar ourselves. If we are faithful witnesses who testify of Christ and who stand for the truth in these dark days in which we live that are only growing darker, we should not be surprised to observe that people will rise up and try to destroy us. We should not be surprised if they view us as tormentors. We should not be surprised if they view us as the problem that needs to be eliminated. And to whatever degree that they may succeed in silencing us, 
or marginalizing us, we should not be surprised to see them rejoicing in that. The thinking of many people, even today, is that the biggest problem facing our world today is Christianity. It's you who believe in him and believe in his word. This world would be such a nice place to live if it wasn't for these wacko Christians, they think. If we can just get rid of these Christian troublemakers and their worldview and eliminate it from the public square, then we might have a chance at creating a happy world. That's the way the world will view these two witnesses. That's the way the Jewish leaders viewed Christ, which is why they killed him. And Jesus says, if the world has hated me, it's going to hate you in the same way. And I hope you're ready for that. Here in Revelation 8, the Antichrist has killed these two witnesses and left their bodies to rot in the streets. And the world is looking upon the corpses of these men and celebrating stores and Gift shops around the world are having banner days as people are shopping and now buying gifts for one another in celebration of this amazing defeat of these two witnesses. But the rejoicing and the gloating will not last long. This brings us to the fifth prophecy regarding Jerusalem and the two witnesses during the tribulation period. Number five, the world will see the two witnesses rise from the dead and ascend to heaven. The world will see the two witnesses rise from the dead and ascend to heaven. Observe what John is told will happen in verse 11. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. Yeah. By the way, I, I see no reason why we should not take three and a half days as three and a half days, literal days. But it's likely true that these three and a half days also serve as something of a metaphor for the three and a half years in which Jerusalem will now be trampled underfoot before Jesus returns and restores the city. All of that seems to be prefigured in what happens to these witnesses. Their bodies lie in the street for three and a half days, and then the breath of life from God comes into them, and they stand on their feet fully alive. And the world is watching, and as a result, we're told that great fear fell upon those who were watching them. This would include those who are right there on the scene Watching this and would also include anyone watching from around the world on television or by live stream or any modern technology. Observe what happens next in verse 12. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them. So the witnesses hear a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud and their enemies watched them. The same command, come up here, 
was spoken to John back in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. John hears these words. He sees a door up in heaven that is open, and he hears the words come up here, and the next thing he knows, he's in heaven. And here, this same command is given to these witnesses, come up here, and then evidently a cloud descends, and then that cloud takes them up to heaven while their enemies look on. Imagine what the world will be thinking as they look on and watch this happening. And this is not all that happens. This brings us to the final prophecy regarding Jerusalem and the two witnesses during the tribulation period. Number six, a great earthquake will occur, bringing the fear of God to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. A great earthquake will occur, bringing the fear of God to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Listen to what John says, or what is said to John in verse 13. And in that hour, the very hour that these two witnesses are raised and ascended up to heaven in a cloud, in that hour, there was a great earthquake. And everyone will know this earthquake is tied to that what just happened to the two witnesses. In that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. Speaking of the city of Jerusalem, 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This is probably not a global earthquake, though it might be. However wide this earthquake will be, we're told here only that one-tenth of the city of Jerusalem will be destroyed and 7,000 of the inhabitants of the city will be killed. As for the rest of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, John says they were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, there are some commentators who read this and think that this is kind of a fear-induced and begrudging acknowledgement of God's existence and power, but it falls short of genuine conversion. But I think I would disagree uh, with that. The fear of people in this moment is not just because of the earthquake, but because of the connection of the earthquake to the resurrection and ascension of the witnesses. And even the language John uses here, giving glory to the God of heaven. In Revelation 16, 9, you can write that reference down. Revelation 16, 9, we're going to learn of men who did not repent so as to give God glory. Equating repentance with giving glory to God. So it seems that the resurrection of these two witnesses and the earthquake that follows is used by God to bring the Jewish survivors of this earthquake to a place of giving genuine glory to God through their repentance and through their faith in Christ. This seems to be yet another amazing moment of many Jews being saved. We've already seen 144,000 Jews whom God has saved earlier in Revelation, and now it seems that there are many more being saved now as a part of the process moving towards the point where all Israel 
will be saved by the end of the tribulation period. And if you're wondering, where are we now in the timeline of the seven seals and the seven trumpets, John makes it clear in verse 14 where he says, look at how he concludes here, the second woe, and which trumpet is that? That's the sixth trumpet. The second woe, which is the sixth trumpet, is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And the third woe is the seventh trumpet that is about to sound. The trumpet that will finish the mystery of God and usher in the climax of human history. Now, if we, just a few thoughts before we close here, if we understand the two witnesses as prophesying during the first half of the tribulation period, then you can imagine that the Antichrist defeating of them will serve as a real watershed moment for the Antichrist. Everyone the world over will no doubt be amazed and impressed with the ability of the Antichrist to kill these witnesses when no one else could. And because everyone evidently hated these witnesses so much, the Antichrist approval ratings are going to go through the roof, right? Thereby giving him more power over the world than ever. There's also little doubt that the Antichrist will be impressed with his own achievement here in killing these two witnesses who had seemed so indestructible for the previous three and a half years. And it's probably in the ego trip of this victory that the Antichrist will march right on in to the Holy of Holies and present himself as being God while the dead bodies of the witnesses are still lying out in the streets. This will be the abomination of desolation that Daniel foretells in Daniel 9.27, and it will serve as a clear marker for the Jews to make note of. As Jesus says in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Run for your life, Jesus is saying. And a few verses later, he says in verse 21, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now. And this is what lies ahead of us in the book of Revelation as we continue in the coming chapters. Whatever your eschatology, whatever your understanding of the timeline of these events might be, all of us would understand and agree that these days in which these two witnesses are going to live and minister will be dark and difficult days, right? These two witnesses will know up front that they have a limited number of days. They know the exact number of those days. They will fill up each day, no doubt, with faithful ministry. They will know that the world will wish them dead 
they will know that they're ultimately going to be killed, but they will faithfully prophesy anyway. They will know that the world views us as tormentors, but they will not back away from the calling that God has laid on them. They will not change and adapt their message in order to curry the favor of the world around them, nor will they ever apologize for truth that they have spoken. They will keep proclaiming the truth that God has given them to proclaim. And our calling as Christians is not exactly like the calling of these two witnesses, but our calling is more like their calling than it is different. We're called to be Christ's witnesses in Acts chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, where Jesus says, you shall be my witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's our calling to give witness to the truth about Christ and to make disciples of all the nations and then to teach people to observe all things that Christ has commanded us. In fact, we can actually look at Cornerstone and call the story of Cornerstone in 2021 the saga of Riverside and the 500 witnesses. And how is that story playing out? Is God's will being done by you and by me? Are we being the witnesses that God has saved us and called us to be? Like the two witnesses, we all know that we're living in increasingly darkened days that are increasingly hostile to the truth. We all know that we have only a limited number of days, though we don't know the exact number of those days. We all know that we may be persecuted for speaking the truth about Christ. Granted, we cannot breathe fire from our mouths and destroy our enemies, though I know some of you really wish you had that spiritual gift. I'm glad I don't, because there'd be a lot of dead people already. I would not be, could not be trusted with this ability. We won't be able to breathe fire out of our mouths like these witnesses do. But guys, we have something even more powerful than fire to come out of our mouths. And that is the truth of the gospel that Christ has commissioned us to declare. Amen. As God said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 5.14, listen to this. He says to Jeremiah, behold, I am making my words in your mouth fire, and this people would, and it will consume them. The fire that we've been given are the words of the gospel, a fire that gives off the aroma of life to some and the aroma of death to others, will we be faithful to declare this gospel without compromise? Will we be faithful to have the fire of God's words coming from our mouths as we faithfully speak it to the world? Will we be willing to bear as a church the reproach of Christ and even clothe ourselves in sackcloth as it were? That's just so amazing to me that that's how these guys are dressed. They're not dressed in skinny jeans and hip attire. It's like, let's put on sackcloth and do our ministry that way. These witnesses wearing sackcloth would be the equivalent of us having a church that goes by the name of Sackcloth Bible Church. 
How do you market that in our world today? But these two witnesses didn't try to fit in with the world. Their preaching was not some sappy, sweet, positive message that tickled people's ears. Their message was blood earnest. Their message was that God is on the move. His wrath is falling upon the earth. And history is racing toward the second coming of Jesus Christ. And now is the time to repent of your sins and find refuge in Jesus. May this be our message to the world. And if you're here this morning, it is by divine appointment that you are right here listening to this message. God wants you here to hear this message. If you have never believed in Jesus and called upon his name, I plead with you this morning to turn your eyes away from yourself or anything else that you are trusting in and look to Jesus and believe in him and call upon his name for salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and the promise is you will be saved. And then you can join us in being one of his witnesses to the world. Let's pray and ask God to help us as a church to live out the calling that we have been given. Lord, I, I, I read all the same things that the people of this congregation read. We know the direction that things are moving there are people in our church body that have already been persecuted in various ways. We were reminded last week of dear brothers in Christ and other countries of the world that right now are enduring horrible persecution simply because they believe in Jesus and they're, they're declaring this message to the world. And we know, Lord, that the days are darkening further still. And all of us are going to be faced with decisions that we need to make. Will we be faithful? Will we be faithful to Christ or will we abandon him for the sake of our own safety, for the sake of our own business success? Will we speak the truth without apology and without compromise? Or will we waffle and dodge and weave in order to not offend the sensibilities of our sin-sick world? I pray, Lord, for the 500 witnesses associated with the Cornerstone congregation that you would help each of us to be faithful to discharge the calling that you have given to us. May the fire of the gospel be breathed from our mouths as we declare your truth and that many would be saved and that even those who are not saved, that we will at least have been faithful to have given them the truth that you called us to give them. If there's any here this morning, Lord, that have not fled to Jesus and found refuge in him, 
I pray that with the cords of your love that you would draw them to yourself, that they would fall before Jesus' feet and pay homage to him as their Lord and Savior and experience the blessedness of finding refuge in him. We are needy, we fall so far short, and we need your strength to be faithful in these days. And we thank you for this passage that gives us ample inspiration to be what you have called us to be. I pray this for myself and for this congregation, Lord, in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said,